IBEC, the voice of Irish business. Welcome to IBEC Voices, a podcast series about the people and priorities behind Irish business and the global climate that shapes it. With the second week of the conference underway, our mini-series with a focus on COP26 continues. For this episode, Dr. Neil Walker, Head of Infrastructure, Energy and Environment at IBEC, meets with Steve Varley, EY Global Vice Chair for Sustainability. In this episode, recorded in the EY office in Glasgow, Neil and Steve look back on the first week of COP and speak about climate ambition and opportunity. Hello, this is Neil Walker again. It's week two of COP26 and I'm in Glasgow in the offices of EY and I'm meeting with Steve Varley, Global Vice Chair for Sustainability. Good morning, Steve, and I invite you to say a few words about EY's work in the broad area of sustainability. Thank you, Neil. Well, firstly, thank you for the invite to um, the opportunity to talk. Uh, I'm delighted to be here, especially as the sun is shining here in Glasgow as we hit day nine of COP26. as we've just been talking about, I've been here since COP began, and this has been a different COP than ones in the past, and maybe we should come on to that. Uh, EY, as I'm sure all of your listeners know, is a global professional services firm. We have 310,000 people and over $40 billion of revenue. We've been working with our clients on this broad agenda of climate, ESG, sustainability, the 17 Sustainable Development Goals for many, many years. But let's focus on climate action. And climate action, as I'm sure everyone knows, is number 13 in the Sustainable Development Goals. We have a very strong climate action and sustainability team, again, on a global basis. And as EY, we make sure that we have an authentic position. I think in this area in particular, the organization needs to be authentic, needs to have a strong and progressive position. So you may have picked up that in January 2021, we announced a carbon ambition, which we purposefully crafted to make EYB a real leader in this space. So our our carbon ambition has got four parts to it. The first is that we'll reduce our absolute emissions by 40% from an FY19 baseline. The second is that we will be net zero by 2025, which is incredibly aggressive, especially compared to our peer set in professional services. The third bit is to be carbon negative in FY21, which is now. And I'm really proud to confirm that we are carbon negative. We have removed and offset more carbon than we've emitted in our financial year 21. And that's with result of reducing our absolute emissions a lot through a seven-point action plan, but also because of, frankly, a reduction in air travel due to COVID. Uh, So we are negative now to the tune of minus 35%, and we expect to carry that on for every year. Every year, we think, as a simple business, we should be negative, remove or offset more carbon than we emit. And lastly, Neil, we've had all of the climate maths, all of our science, all of our approach signed off and approved by the prestigious Science Based Target Institute. And we do that uh, 
as part of an assurance step, but also to make sure that we're transparent in the standards that we've applied to our situation and our approach. So from an EY perspective, not only do we serve our clients and help them uh, decarbonize and protect and create value by decarbonizing, but we also want to be seen and to be one of the most progressive organizations in the world in this area. Thank you. So Steve, moving on, I would welcome your views on what progress do you think was made during the first week and the beginning of the second week of COP26? And secondly, what do you think the prospects are for what the European Union or the UK team would regard as a successful outcome to the conference? So I arrived in Glasgow, like many attendees uh, on a rainy, blustery Sunday night, which in some respects may have, in a Shakespearean way, set the stage for the first few days, at least, of COP26. Uh, Day one and day two were world leaders' summits, and we sat in the main plenary and were addressed by the great and the good from around the world. One thing that always strikes me at a COP is the diversity of attendees. So of course you get a lot of white middle-aged men in suits, but you also have indigenous tribes and their representatives in the room. You also have other NGOs in the room uh, that represent organizations like the less developed countries with uh, islands that are really at peril from climate change and sea level changes. So imagine uh, the main plenary room where we had multiple world leaders talking about their high ambition for this COP26. So after day two, I felt an energy in the room and in the overall conference centers that I think is different to other COPs I've been to. Now, where do we get to then as we entered the weekend that we've just had? I suppose inevitably there's a tempering of enthusiasm and more realism in the room. I'm sure everyone recognises that at this COP we have four objectives. The first one is to keep 1.5 alive. Uh, and I, I was pleased over the weekend uh, some NGOs uh, had done some climate maths and they believe that there was a chance that this COP would get close to keeping 1.5 alive. Interestingly though, I also see that the UN have done their own climate maths and believe that there's still quite a gap to go. So we're focused on the 1.5 alive. Uh, Second objective for the COP is on adaptation. And in fact, a couple of days last week were devoted to adaptation and that conversation went on this week as well. The third one is mobilizing finance. And you would expect us at EY to be very focused on this. So there's good news and maybe not so good news. The good news is that uh, many financial institutions with great work by Mark Carney have pledged $130 trillion to be mobilized. That is a rather large number. But the less good news is it's looking increasingly likely that the commitment that was made in Paris for $100 billion of climate finance to be available immediately will not be met until maybe 2023. Now I suspect that that could be seen by many less developed countries as reneging on one of the key and core commitments to Paris. 
And Neil, I think that could be a problem that we all need to return to quite quickly, and especially in COP27, which is scheduled for Egypt. The last objective was that we all work together to deliver the previous three. That was the fourth objective of this COP. And from that, I do sense a willingness from more and more countries to compromise their positions as the societal unrest and focus on climate action, I think is reaching a crescendo. So overall, I think we sit here day nine, is it, of COP26 uh, on this sunny, bright morning. Uh, and I'd say I'm optimistic. But Neil, I'll also say I'm an optimist that worries a lot. Now, you've also asked about the EU and UK. What do they see as being successful? I would go back to those four objectives. Uh, I see high alignment between, the, between, let me call it, the European countries on what this COP is trying to achieve. Now, obviously, there are some outliers in that. Poland has some special requests and issues on coal production and coal-fired energy production. But I do sense alignment and positivity. And I, for one, I'm an optimist. I do worry a lot, but I'm optimistic as I sit here today. I often find the things I worry about aren't the ones that trip me up. There's a very famous uh, saying by a former Taoiseach in Ireland, it's the little things that trip you up. There you go. So um, the third area I'd, I'd like to cover is Britain being a major trading partner of the EU and particularly of Ireland. And in Ireland, we're trying to make the economy more circular, circular supply chains, and many of our supply chains are with Britain. But there has been some disruption uh, particularly uh, in the last year or so, as a consequence not just of COVID, but also of Brexit. And I was wondering if you have any views on how businesses in Ireland can continue to cooperate with their trading partners in order to make the circular transition a success. Well, let me try and bring it alive with an example from last week, Neil, where the British Chancellor Rishi Sunak announced a new piece of government legislation to be tabled where all listed companies and all financial institutions in the UK will have to publish their net zero plan by 2023. Now that took many by surprise. It's a very progressive measure for the UK government to put in place. Now, for those of you that work in this area, you'll, I'm sure, just like us, start to think through the consequences of that on scope three. Uh, and scope three, where our uh, emissions are the scope three of somebody else's emissions. So that gets you straight into supply chains. So I think there's a, a real opportunity for a new level of Irish and UK collaboration because our supply chains are so intermingled backwards and forwards across the sea uh, and it will be for at least the UK listed companies as they start to assess their scope one two three emissions especially in scope three they'll be compelled to enter a dialogue with their suppliers potentially in Ireland so they can understand more about those Irish companies emissions so they can be reported back as part of their 2023 plan uh, and no doubt Part of the UK government's thinking is that the net zero plan will create pressure on companies to decarbonise. Uh, and I think, Neil, therefore, there's an opportunity for Irish companies 
to show even more leadership on this agenda by accelerating their decarbonisation, uh, which I think will be a competitive differentiator for them when they're looking to do business with UK counterparts. And I think it could well be a two-way process because the, the EU is um, developing a regulation on corporate sustainability reporting and it's quite timely that only last month the Irish government published a climate action plan with sectoral targets so the pressure is on and time is of the essence. And maybe within that, Neil, there'll be a new opportunity not just for sort of doing direct business through supply chains but collaboration on innovation I still think we have, as the UK and Ireland, opportunities uh, to better connect our smart grids, renewables that are offshore in both countries, wind and then also solar power. So I'd like to think that part of the decarbonisation journey that the UK, Ireland, part of the EU will go on will create new levels of innovation and collaboration as well. That's great, Steve. Thank you so much indeed for your time. IBEC, the voice of Irish business.